This is an inexact science. My name is Lisa Cantrell. Here we go. <laughs> well, I mostly just um I'll call their some of their names. I say, okay, who's hungry? And then they tell me, and then I say, them come out, and then they eat the crumbs and stuff in our house. Like while I'm eating lunch, if they're hungry, then they can just eat the crumbs off the ground. Mushy, gooshy, come out, come out. You hear them? I mean, they're in my foot. They can even be like in the main part, not just the tippy. The main part of your foot. <laughs> they, this is really weird. They're not dinosaurs, but they're born by dinosaurs. Yeah, they're like something else that comes in the egg if the egg develops too big, and they're like filling in the gaps from the dinosaurs and the eggs when they born them. My name is Flora F L O R A, and I'm from Minnesota. Soda, soda, soda. When a child tells you they have a pretend friend, you don't know what's coming next. The babies are as big as half a rice. Full-grown ones are as big as a grain of rice. That's how big they are. You seriously do not know what they are going to say next. They're like teeny weeny humans. I'm Marjorie Taylor, professor of psychology at the University of Oregon. Uh, I think that if you take a sample of preschoolers, you're going to get about a third, maybe a little less, who have an imaginary friend. Uh, if you follow children up to the age of seven or eight and ask have they ever had an imaginary friend, it's going to be double that. So, you know, at some point during that, those years, they've had an imaginary friend. It's hard to give a definition, but what we call an imaginary companion is a character created by the child and interacted with or talked about on a regular basis. So we have this pretty elaborate system where we have the parent in one room, the child in the other. We collect information from both, and then we do follow-up interviews with both because there's a lot of variation in what the parent and child will say. You need to cross-check. The parent sometimes doesn't even know about it. I think that happens a fair bit, especially with older children, children who are seven or eight. The imaginary friend will be mentioned in passing, and, you know, the parent doesn't know that the child is talking about someone who's imaginary. That actually happened in my family. My daughter talked about Michael Rose, and I thought Michael Rose was somebody at the daycare until I asked. I started wondering, who is Michael Rose? And I found out that Michael Rose had lots of giraffe pets and etc. etc. And I've heard this from other parents as well. Will you give some of your favorite examples? Yeah, so Elfie Welfie has always been a favorite of mine. Uh, Alfie Welfie is a little veterinarian, very small. Uh, she has tie-dyed hair. 
tie-dyed skin, tie-dyed furniture, tie-dyed sheets on her bed. Everything in her life is tie-dye. Tippy and Tompy. I like Tippy and Tompy. They were little twin uh, children, blonde with blue eyes. Yes. <laughs> Baintor, yeah, he was a little little guy that lived in the light. He's just white. He lives in the light. That, you can't see him because he's white. When we first started doing this research, we were motivated by the question of do children know these, these pretend friends are pretend? They're so emotionally caught up with them. They love them. They talk about them in very engaged ways. Do they understand it's just pretend? But what we noticed as we did more and more interviews is that many children wanted to make sure that we understood the imaginary friend was imaginary. So I think it's because we're sitting there, we're listening, we're writing down things, and the child starts to get a little, you know, she, they just want to make sure we're on the same page. You know, she's just a little pretend girl. She's, you know, you, I just made her up. Lucy, Lucy, come up, come up. Can you see them? Can other people see them? Who can see them? Um, nobody. They're invisible. Except when you have invisible vision and only superpower superheroes can do that. This is how you see them. So what we decided after we had collected quite a few descriptions of invisible friends, we had 83 that we went back and looked at and said, okay, how many children actually do this? They just on their own spontaneously clarify, you know, it's just pretend. And we found that um, almost a third of them did that. I may have faces in They're like teeny weeny humans. There was only one child who really thought her friend was real. So that's one child out of 83, but it just doesn't happen very often. The children understand that it's pretend. When children are confused about fantasy and reality, a lot of times it's because parents have done everything they could possibly do to confuse the child, in my opinion. So for example, you know, the Santa Claus conspiracy. I mean, what, what do parents do? They, they do everything possible to convince the child that there is a Santa Claus. And then when the child believes in Santa Claus, they say, isn't it cute? She doesn't know the difference between fantasy and reality. This is really weird. Mooka, Mooka, Juka, Buka. Are they pretend, invisible, or are they real? Um, they're invisible and they could be real. I mean, uh, so my toy scientists have never figured out if they're real or not. Yeah, so why do they do it? It is a fascinating question. Scientists have never figured out if they're real or not. They've just learned about them, and they've just never figured out about them. They're like teeny weeny humans. They have their little houses made of this stuff inside my body. <laughs> And then when they come out, what do they usually do? When when do you ask them to come out? When I don't know what words means, or when I don't know what's happening, or when I feel weird about what's going on, or stuff like that. We find that only children are somewhat more likely to have an imaginary friend, although we found imaginary friends uh, that belong to children with every size family. Boys and girls make them the same when you look at age seven or eight. If you look younger, you know, we're talking about three and four-year-olds, uh, little girls are more likely to have imaginary friends. But if you follow them later, that gender difference goes away. I guess one could ask the broader question about pretend play. 
We've had religious parents come in and be very concerned about their child having an imaginary friend. Early on, Stephanie Carlson and I did some work with Mennonites. Uh, that's a culture which there's some disapproval of pretend play. And we found that on the playground, we saw, I think, just as much pretending with the Mennonite kids, um, but it had a different quality to it. It wasn't as um, fantasy-oriented. It's more like playing store, that kind of thing. Why do they have an imaginary friend? Um, I think it's because nobody's around right then and they want to play with someone. Simple as that. I mean, they have their friend Rachel at daycare. They go home, she isn't there, so they play with fake Rachel. And it's something they can do. It's something they enjoy. Really, they have control over what the content is. They uh, get to be the expert. They can be a, a way to communicate information, like uh, your imaginary friend is afraid of that dog that lives next door. Or they can be uh, someone that you tell your secret to, that something's bothering you and you really like to talk about it, but there's no one you trust. So children who are going through a rough time, what, what can they do? There are these little people that don't have a lot of control in their lives, but they do have their imaginations and they can use their imaginations to help them through a rough time. And they do. They're, it's amazing how they can do that. It's a very specific study because we had to um, get a population where there's going to be a lot of bad outcomes. So we thought, okay, let's find out if having an imaginary friend at age 12 is a red flag. In the literature, it's a red flag. So out of over a thousand kids, uh, we were looking at um, the kids who the teachers had basically said, these are the kids least likely to succeed. They're not doing well in school. They're getting into all kinds of trouble. They have really a lot of difficulties at home and the world is tough for these kids. So there, there are 152 of them and we thought, okay, we're gonna look at these kids and find they're 12 years old and find out how many of them have imaginary friends. And we found that 13 of them had imaginary friends. And then we got the data from them uh, that was collected when they were 18, right? And so we know that the, this is a very high risk group. We had a set of criteria that they had to meet for us to say they're doing well. They had to graduate from high school. They had to have no history of police arrest. They had to not be using illegal drugs and no history of mental illness. So we found that of that group overall, many, many children, the majority of them could not meet that bar, even though the bar is really not all that high, but still, you know, they couldn't meet it. But the children who had imaginary friends at age 12 were much more likely to um, have be doing those things. So it, it actually was associated with resilience, that the children who had, at age 12 had imaginary friends uh, were doing much better as a group than the other children when you looked at um, them at age 18.
why do you guys think that is? Well, okay, we have what we're allowed to say and what we speculate. And mm -hmm. what we're allowed to say is, I think what, you know, given the, the selective nature of the sample, and we're only talking about 13 children and all of that, um, what we can say is it's not a red flag. It's definitely not a red flag. And that alone, saying that, is important because in the literature, it's a red flag. No, it isn't. These kids were doing better. You might say, well, you'd want to do a bigger study. You're never going to do a bigger study than this because you're talking about uh, something that's not that common. You know, it's only 9 or 10% of the children have it. And then you have to have a sample where there's going to be a high um, prevalence of problems, okay? So what we think is that children who can get some of their needs, those social needs met through their imagination are protected in some way from a deviant peer group. Are they pretend, invisible, or are they real? Um, they're invisible and they could be real. I mean, the scientists, my toy scientists, have never figured out if they're real or not. They've just learned about them and they've just never figured out about them. But maybe they will when things happen after humans. Before humans, we know about, but after humans, it's a long story because we don't know what kind of things will be after humans. I mean... That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but do you think that the children, the children are actually more creative than adults? I think it's true that children have wild and fantastic imaginations. And they're encouraged up to a point, you know. To, uh, and they have the time to do that. Uh, many people would say that that's the high point in creativity. I don't know. I mean, I feel like it, uh, those behaviors get morphed into other things. I think that people just in general are very, very creative. That that potential is there and it comes out in lots of different ways. We see it, it's fascinating that it's there so early. Because, you know, you would think to have the wild imagination, you would have to have a lot of development happen, be at a high level of cognitive development. But no, there it is, you know, at two. Thank you to Marjorie Taylor for contributing on the science side of things for this show. Thank you to Flora for talking to me about the invisible friends that live in her toes and to her aunt Angela for recording her out in Minnesota. All of the music that you heard on today's episode was created, performed, and recorded by me and the amazing Sarah Allen. And I'm proud to announce that An Inexact Science is now officially funded in part by a grant from the Association of Psychological Sciences. Thank you so much to the APS for supporting this podcast and to you for listening. This is an inexact science.